Welcome to the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM, broadcasting to you from the University of British Columbia Vancouver campus from unceded Musqueam Territory. My name is Christine Kim, and today is October the 5th, the start of a new month, which is always an exciting time, and especially so because, if you didn't know this already, the Vancouver International Film Festival has begun. The team here at the Arts Report has been working hard to cover all the latest and greatest films featured at the festival this year. And I don't want you to miss out on all of the awesome VIF 2016 content we are pumping out. So, just to give you a brief overview, a new arts reporter, Dion Halick, has been going to see a lot of VIF films, two of which are Weirdos, directed by Bruce McDonald, and the other being Where the Universe Sings, directed by Nancy Lang and Peter Raymond. If you're interested, please do go check out the reviews of both these VIF films at our blog on citr.ca. Also, another two VIF films that I want to mention are Mixed Match, directed by Jeff Chia, and We Are X by Stephen Kayak. Now, these are two VIF films that I got screeners for. Mixed Match was a film about the journeys of mixed-race people in the U.S. who are or who were in need of bone marrow transplants. It was a pretty eye-opening documentary about the hardships that individuals with blood diseases such as leukemia faced trying to find a blood marrow donor match if they were of mixed race. We Are X, on the other hand, while totally equally eye-opening, was on a completely different topic. And, and this film was actually about a rock band that emerged out of Japan in the late 80s that seriously transformed the music and culture scene nationally and internationally. I got to catch up with the director of We Are X, Stephen Kayak, for a quick interview. This is Stephen Kayak, and I am the director of We Are X. Awesome. So We Are X is a VIF film, a film that's going to be featured at the Vancouver International Film Festival this year, 2016. Can you give our listeners an understanding of what the premise of We Are X is? It's a documentary about X-Japan. X-Japan was and is uh, probably the biggest rock band to emerge out of Japan, sort of in the, in the late 80s, pioneering a really radical style of what was called visual K or visual rock super crazy hair and makeup and costumes. Uh, they kind of blend Kiss and Guns N' Roses with this sort of Bowie-esque uh, kind of glam rock. It's really awesome, really over-the-top, really flamboyant. And the story is really unlike uh, any sort of typical rock documentary you may have encountered. Uh, the leader of the band uh, is a man named Yoshiki, who writes all the songs, plays drums, and this beautiful crystal see-through piano and it's it really it also it, it really becomes about his journey through uh, kind of endless tragedies in his life lots of death surrounding him physical pain emotional tortures uh, and a lead singer gets brainwashed into a cult i mean you, you, it sounds over the top and ridiculous but it, it's kind of an epic and almost like operatic uh journey mm-hmm, right <laughs> sorry right long right. answer but that's it, it is hard to sum it up. It's, it's 
it's pretty wide in scope. No, for sure, but I think you just did a great job in summing up the film. And when I, after I saw the film, I was kind of shocked at the fact that I hadn't heard of Extrapan until now. So I'm wondering, yeah. how did you come into contact with Extrapan? Uh, I've kind of become known as like the guy that does music documentaries. I have a kind of a, a, a string of them to my credit. Um, and they approached my producer, uh, they, you know, Yoshiki, been trying to push awareness of the band uh, in the West. I mean, they have a very significant uh, following, but nothing like, you know, a, a major band that you, like you said, you would hear of every day. You, you'd never heard of them. I had never heard of them. So it just, you know, it, it started as a job. I was just offered to direct this project um, mm. with Yoshiki and found some real common ground. And I, too, was just absolutely shocked that I had never heard of these guys, given how huge they were. I mean, they are huge, huge force, um, or were at the time, not just in music, but in culture in Japan. I mean, they really started something that um, has now grown into like a worldwide phenomenon. J-Rock, K-Rock, bands dressing up in crazy costumes and you know, it's just, you, you, it doesn't seem, you know, that unusual these days, but these guys really were sort of at the ground zero of a movement that kind of changed society. And so, yeah, it was like this amazingly deep well to fall into. It was an amazing story to tell. Seriously, and I really don't disagree with you there that I was absolutely shocked that I hadn't heard of these guys before because their impact, like you said, was so big. And in the documentary, I saw that there was a lot of mixtures of different interviews with them, different shots of them from different concerts, um, very recent shots from like Madison Square Garden, and it seemed like mm -hmm. some original interviews that you were doing. How much did you rely on kind of your own footage of them? And how much did you to do a lot of digging with the information that's already out there about them. Yeah, it's a really nice mix. I mean, we, we had great access. We didn't have much pre-production. We were literally thrown in days before they started playing, you know, getting ready for Madison Square Garden. So we just kind of embedded ourselves and followed them around and tried to kind of get a feel for what this, this crazy world is like. And you see some of it in the film where, you know, they were starting rehearsals with, you know, their little surgical masks and sunglasses and, you know, these, these guys, it looked like the man who fell to earth. They really looked like aliens having descended upon New York. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was a very odd sight. Cause they, they, they just, you know, they, they present themselves in this visual way that's really striking um, and, and quite alien. So we just we, we just filmed and filmed and filmed. I mean, you know, went back to Japan with Yoshiki and went to his hometown and, you know, just got time, you know, spent time with each member of the band, uh, mostly Yoshiki and the vocalist Toshi were really at the heart of the story. Uh, luckily, uh, there's a, Yoshiki and company have amassed an enormous amount of archive on the band. It's a very well-documented group, um, and they generated a lot of their own archives. So I think there's a sense that this was going to be an important story one day, and they just kept filming and filming and filming and filming, I mean, filling vaults full of footage, not just live concerts, but, you know, behind-the-scenes stuff, other interviews you know, things that would happen on the news in Japan. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was uh, it was an almost endless supply uh, of material. And then, uh, yeah, just me and my two editors just get down to the task of shaping it and figuring out uh, what to put in and, and what to leave out. I mean, it's never easy, but uh, we had a lot at our disposal. And in your opinion, I'm curious, why don't you think more people kind of know who X-Japan is? Well, I think there's a few, you know, there's a few things. I mean, they, they broke up. Like the first wave of this band, like you know, who was so huge in Japan, fell apart and disappeared, kind of 
just before the internet was a thing. Oh. You know what I mean? So they were very localized. And the, the, they were very successful in Japan, but didn't even really tour that much, or if at all, outside of Japan, because the touring culture uh, of, like, maybe Taiwan or China or Thailand couldn't support this massive rock group. I mean, they just there was no promoters that could handle booking ex-Japan, like, with the, the pyro and the flying drum set and all this stuff. You know what I mean? It was like they, they could become very successful at home, but they didn't really quite have the means to tour that thing around. And there was no desire or, or interest in the Western world. So they remained a bit of a local phenomenon. So they broke up, but then, like Yoshiki says in the movie, then the seeds started spreading because people could kind of discover them online. But by that time, there was no ex-Japan. So they weren't making albums. They weren't touring. They became these kind of legends of the past, but who amassed a massive following. So when they started to creep back to life, uh, I think that they realized there was this growing fan base all over the world that was ready to receive them again. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's hard enough for a new band, I think, to break through. And, I mean, for a band that's, you know, the, the founding members are all in their 50s at this point. Mm-hmm. And we still, I think, have these huge walls of prejudice up um, in the West against music from other countries. It's, mm-hmm. it's definitely changed a lot, but it's still something to fight against, you know? And, I mean, here they are. You know, these kind of heavy glam rockers from a distant past trying to, you know, break down a door here in the present. And there's a lot stacked against them. But um, you see the response, you know, uh, to them uh, in in Madison Square Garden. Even that tour, they did a smaller tour around 2010, and people lost their minds. So, you know, we're hoping that that has just continued to grow and grow and grow. And the film is a huge part of helping to spread the word. Right, right. Um, And that's the other thing. I mean, has this film done any other runs than this? Well, we started in January. uh, We debuted at Sundance. And uh, we won uh, a jury prize for editing, which for a documentary is really uh, a nice thing to get. Um, It was a very complex edit. Played South by Southwest. Uh, we've taken it to I've taken it to Moscow. I've taken it to Shanghai. Wow! Uh, it's played in Singapore, uh, it's Korea. Uh, where else? I'm taking it to London next, which is sadly why I can't be in Vancouver. I'm so upset. But we're starting a kind of a push into Europe now um, that will show uh, at the IDFA, the International Documentary Festival of Amsterdam, in November, which is a big event on the documentary calendar. And it comes out in cinemas in the U.S. Uh, mid October. So. It's a big push, you know, it's getting out there. It's, it's really starting to uh, spread its wings. I think it's so cool that you got to meet Yoshiki in person and uh, got to follow him and his band around. And I noticed that in the documentary, Yoshiki says basically all of his lines in English. Um, and, yes. you know, some of his other band members speak Japanese. Now, for the narrative of the story, were you worried at all that him speaking English would oversimplify his narrative and wouldn't allow him to say what's on his mind more freely? I mean, he's been working on his English for decades. He speaks great English. Mm-hmm. Um, the ironic choice to actually subtitle his English actually was also on his request because <laughs> we were showing him the film at one point. And he kind of turned to me and said, what did I just say? <laughs> Wait, what did I say again? That, all right, all right, we'll subtitle it. It's fine. But I think it was really important for him to communicate in English, really important. 
he knows that that you know will help build a bridge to other worlds that will hopefully you know embrace his music despite the language barrier i mean that's the irony is like we you know he, i love what he says at one point early on when he, they're first trying to break america and someone criticizes him like why do you think you can do it no mm. japanese bands ever broke and he says look music doesn't have any boundaries of race color and blood that's what he believed you know that it really can transcend and cross borders and boundaries but there are these horrible realities that we face, like mm. their singing in broken or mixed Japanese and English uh, just wasn't cutting it. People were, it was, people were resisting them, uh, which is a tragedy. So, you know, a lot of the new songs are, are written in English, but I don't think they've sacrificed any of their kind of cultural values, so to speak. I mean, these guys are very Japanese. The imagery, even the, 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 the construction of the music, uh, one, the bass player Heath at one point uh, talked about a certain melodic way that Yoshiki writes that really kind of pulls at the Japanese soul. And so I, I, I think it's it's an interesting problem. But the, yeah, him communicating in English was, was actually quite important to him, although we were really interested in letting it be as Japanese as possible mm -hmm. because that also, you know, is interesting to people. It's a window into the culture and you know you want to celebrate that um as much as you want to communicate the sort of you know borderless uh, appeal of of music itself the documentary reflects kind of a lot of the intimate and and personal details about yoshiki's past but mm -hmm. from you as the director Stefan, i'm wondering if you could describe yoshiki in a couple sentences for us as a person how would you describe him yeah, and he's just, he, he is quite unlike anyone uh, I've met. And I've, I've done films where I've, you know, met and worked with David Bowie and the, the Rolling Stones and, you know, mm. lots of and the Backstreet Boys, for God's sake. You know what I mean? I've, I've, I've been around various levels of fame and different constructions. Let me try to boil this down. I mean, Yoshiki is, he's a, he's a genius. I mean, he's a musical genius with an incredible fortitude and almost like a supernatural drive to create music um, that I think, you know, is a great gift, but also a great burden, you know. Um, he's, he's a remarkable artist uh, who unfortunately drags around these, these ghosts. I mean, he's a really haunted figure, um, but he's also a really inspirational figure. I think he... Uh, he uses the music and kind of creates this transference somehow with the fans. I think they see him as almost like a savior. I, mean, I don't want to be too broad about it, but mm. that, that is how they react to him. I've seen a different side of it because I've gotten to hang out and seen, you know, a more, like you said, more personal angle on him. Right. And um, there's just something really also just very sweet <laughs> about Yoshiki. And, uh, but just very genuine. I mean, he, he, he really just lives for music, you know? Mm. It's as simple as I can say it. He is a, a, a musical genius. He, he lives for music, yet he is, he's kind of haunted and conflicted. There's a lot going on there. Mm. And I hope a lot of that complexity comes across in the film. You know, I mean, they're not, the rock stars are not easy people to relate to and to feel empathy towards. And uh, they certainly put up a lot of barriers with, sunglasses and hair and makeup and you know he gives you a lot of layers to, that you have to try to penetrate but that was 
part of the challenge too in making the film. Well, thank you so much, uh, Stefan, for talking to me about We Are X, and um, it really, truly was a pleasure to be able to see that documentary. Cool, glad you liked it. And now, just before I let you go, I'm just going to ask that you retell the details for the screenings for We Are X at Vancouver International Film Festival 2016, if you know it. Yes, um, three screenings, uh, October 1st, which I think is around 3.45 at the Vancouver Playhouse. Uh, we will also be screening uh, on the October 5th, which is uh, 6.30 p.m. at the Rio Theater. And then finally, uh, the 9th of October, that's uh, 4.15 at the International Village 10. So many opportunities to check it out. Wish I could be there. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening. This was a special interview for VIF 2016 by Christine Kim for the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. And the song that will be ending this segment will be Forever Love by X Japan.
I seriously love this band, X Japan. My name is Christine Kim, and this is The Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. We will be right back after a few short commercials. Stay tuned. When you join Balloon Club, we guarantee that you will be able to make a balloon poodle within the first day. Here at the UBC Ant Club, we just like to talk about ants and compare ant farms. Uh, it's really cool. Paperclip Club is all about, well, paperclips mostly. At Blah Club, you can blah blah, blah 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 blah. There's only one club worth joining at UBC, and that's CITR 101.9 FM. We got free tickets to shows, whirly pops, professional help in all types of audio engineering, passes to festivals, crazy parties, live band swag, all types of crazy people. Our programming manager rides a motorcycle. There's freestyle rapping, Nardwar, the human serviette, the vinyl and record libraries, Discorder magazine, free studio recording, and it sure beats the hell out of Paperclip Club, which is a thing that I just made up because I work at CITR. So come check us out on the floor of the Student Union Building. We got all types of crazy sh** for you to do. Or check us out online at www.citr.ca. Would you like to get updates on your smartphone in an emergency, even if a cell tower is down? It is possible if the FM chip is activated in your phone. Visit freeradioonmyphone.ca to see how you can get involved by contacting your carrier and signing our petition. Welcome back. My name is Christine Kim. You are listening to The Arts Report. Now, amidst Fifth, there is a theatrical production called James and Jamesy in the Dark that will be showing at the Waterfront Theater October 5th to 16th. The show is entirely in the dark, as the title says, and features characters that are illuminated by custom-built lamp-like costumes. Does this sound weird to you? Because it gets even weirder. I spoke with the stars of the production in the dark and got a little taste of what the show was like. So, you mean to say... We don't know. Don't know what? Exactly. Exactly what? Yes, or when. When what? Exactly. And how? Now, see here. Absolutely. Here and now. That's it. That's it? That's it. It? We don't know what or when or where or how until now happens. Because we's under the influence of creation. We's in creation together right now. Oh, oh, yes, now. Yes. Relief. Yes. No, no. Something... something more. More? I say, James, just shows how far we can't see. Yet together, we can see more than we can see on our lonesomes. <sighs> that was an exclusive excerpt of the show James and Jamesy in the Dark, which will be showing at the Waterfront Theatre from October 5th to 16th. My name is Christine Kim, and I caught up with these two highly acclaimed performers this past week to talk about their weird and totally ethereal show. Why don't we start off with introductions? Can you please say your name as well as your involvement in James and Jamesy in the Dark? All right, my name is Alistair Knowles. I'm the lead performer of James and Jamesy in the Dark. <laughs> And uh, my name is Aaron Malkin. I'm James, uh, and I'm the guest star uh, in every production. 
Okay. <laughs> we share the stage pretty regularly. <laughs> tell me what James and Jamesy is about. Um, tell me about the premise of the production, what makes it special. So James and I have been working together for six or so years, creating a variety of performances. And all of our performances are invitations for the audiences to come together with us on an adventure that celebrates imagination and friendship. James and Jamesy in the Dark is unique in that it's performed entirely in the dark. Illuminated by the characters' costumes. Right, you're not totally in the dark the whole time. <laughs> uh, our first few shows, uh, Two for Tea, High Tea, people related to us as uh, the two tea chaps. Uh, we would meet for a weekly tea party in the show, and from there we would launch into an adventure. In the Dark is, is new for us in that we don't have tea time that is occasioning our encounter uh, rather, the context is that there are two chaps who believe they're alone in existence, and they're each, in their solitary way, setting the stage for something to happen. And that happening is uh, the meeting of the other, uh, an event hitherto like never conceived of before in the consciousnesses of each of the characters. And, uh, and from there, there's a whole uh, well, adventure of discovery uh, in that kind of Eden of innocence of of not knowing. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you nailed it right on the nailed head there. It. Nailed it. <laughs> so, would you say that this production is has a pretty solid narrative? People have described it as Pixar meets Waiting for Godot. In that you're waiting for something to happen, but unlike Waiting for Godot in James and James in the Dark, it happens. What happens is is unique to each performance. We once we spill from the stage into the audience, uh, we turn our attention to what is actually happening between us and the relationship that's being developed with the audience. Hmm. By responding to it in real time, we're actually able to create a unique situation that uh, audiences feel, wow, I didn't just watch something, I was part of something. That part of something we guide. So you don't have to come to the theater thinking, oh, what am I gonna bring to the show? Just come and enjoy it, and we'll take care of you. To refer to kind of the wording in your question, uh, Christine, you um, you asked if if it was a pretty solid narrative. Uh, I would say that while Jamesy is highlighting uh, elements of the show where we don't know what's going to happen, um, that's built into the structure of our narrative hmm. uh, in order to um, massage certain discoveries out of the context that's happening in the room. There is a, a solid structure, there's a script uh, in which we conjure answers to the questions like, who are we and why are we here? And uh, those kinds of questions I think are kind of universal in, well, in, in the cultures I'm familiar with. It's, uh, we ask these questions and they lead to our, our myths about where we come from, our creation stories. Mm. And in a sense, in the dark is a discovery of um, where our consciousness comes from uh, and what is our concept of self and other. The other thing that was a little bit, I guess, notable about the play, other than the fact that it's all in the dark, is the fact that you guys have custom-built illuminated costumes. Tell me a little bit about the costumes itself. We were invited by a music festival to provide outdoor entertaining experiences at night for the patrons. So James and I thought, okay, how, how are we going to do this? There's no power, there's no stage, there's no lights. 
we're going to have to illuminate ourselves. So it started off as bicycle helmets with flashlights, torches taped to the heads with lampshades in front of them have gone over, gone through many iterations and now are quite sleek, uh, professionally built props that, that really serve the purpose of being able to narrow the focus of an entire room into a single spotlight or when we turn out and look towards the audience or the walls it really creates this feeling that these are two characters in the middle of darkness and and that sensation on a stage mm. is is quite wonderful to to be able to create i would say that these uh, costumes which consists of uh, various parts but in different body positions we can look like different things so if for example i were to look down i would look like a lampshade <laughs> yep. right um but if i would if we in in sync were to look at the audience the two faces of the lampshades uh would look like two eyes so we become a we like a, a creature of two eyes like together the imagery of the lampshade it's like i like that think the thought of reading under a lamp at night like we're, we're delving into the stories a lone lamp lit up invites invites investigation the lights themselves become also tools of of discovery as we as we move around the stage and illuminate different things including coming across one another for the very first time mm. we the lampshades are our own eyes into the world around us Gotcha. And I suppose it could parallel also um, what we see is what we are conscious of and that which we do not see is out of our awareness. Uh, and it's really easy to, to highlight that with these um, costumes. Uh, and, of course, uh, ev an evolution of consciousness is uh, something we explore in the show itself. Now, these are actually some pretty deep topics, and I'm surprised, I guess, because I thought this was just a total comedy. I mean, comedy can be deep, and I think clearly this is the kind of comedy that is, but I think that's quite hard to do. <laughs> Go for it, James. I would say that there's different uh, qualities of humor in this show. One is there's a lot of wordplay. Uh, the show has been compared to uh, Abbott and Costello, like there's a who's on first kind of, you know, one of us is talking literally and one of us is talking figuratively. But all the while, I think our strength as uh, comedians is in physicality and visual humor. So we create scenarios that are funny simply by what is happening, not so much of an intellectual stimulation, but just the scenario of how we respond spontaneously to events that occur and the emotional connection we have to those responses uh, provide gateways for the audience to release through, release emotion, laughter, um, gasping. So it, as a comedy, it's uh, funny scenarios, funny situations, and also uh, funny reactions to things because they're so honest. A CBC reviewer in, uh, once said, the eight-year-old girl in front of her was giggling and delight the entire show. Yet the simple layered wordplay packs layers of meanings that kept me on the edge of my seat the entire show. And I think what we enjoy is is we, while the show has the potential, you might leave the show going, wow, that was really thoughtful. Mm -hmm. You might also go, that was one hell of a lot of fun. And, and the thoughts might linger a little later. For us, when the best shows are when, when, when we treat the show as if it's, reading or playing a fun game like 
we play the show. So we're not out there to say, hey, everyone, we've got a wonderful, important message for you to think about who you are. It's so <laughs> profound. So <laughs> no, profound. it's like, it's almost by taking the piss out of the, the sacredness of those questions, we're actually able to play in the profoundness of those questions. That was profound. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that you mentioned accolades, I mean, your guys in the dark been hailed as quote unquote one of the most popular fringe duos ever. Seriously, tell me about your guys' run and this tour. When we st first started performing and having particularly Canadian audiences really love how we presented British comedy, it hasn't really stopped. Neither one of us thought we were going to be professional touring artists but once we created shows that really resonated and people thought wow that's one hell of a good time uh, uh, I want to I want to keep doing that uh, we were inspired to keep creating shows by following our own interests as performers and creators we've created work that continues to resonate with with our mm. with our audiences I think key is we create shows that delight ourselves because if we're going to be on stage doing something day after day for years, we sure as hell we better be having, better a, great be having time. a great time. <laughs> and and I think that how much fun we have on stage becomes so evident to the audiences that that they feel like wow, they're part of the part of that experience. And so while we create shows uh, largely that that really get us going and really excite us, uh, the shows that we have created so far happen to be. Uh, family friendly all ages mm. you know, we've had a six-year-old birthday party come to a show in montreal and we've had an old age home come to a show in where was it london or and we just know. brought the whole home <laughs> well it's just <laughs> you know yeah. it's it's a delight after the show to learn that uh, people came in droves from uh, a certain source whether that's a birthday party or an old age home yeah uh, and it just for me highlights the range uh, of age uh, that has a keen interest in the work that we do. Mm -hmm. And I think the other part of it is just that you guys seem to be really, really friendly with each other. So tell me about that, like working together with one person for such a long time. Wow. <laughs> I think it helps that our shows have been well received. Well, we're trying to make a living, and we are making a living doing theater, and we're fortunate that our shows do well enough such that we're able to enjoy the successes with each other and, and any moments of what might be perceived as failures we're able to to sort of s swallow and give each other a pat on the back and go all right let's let's, let's see what that again <laughs> let's, oh let, you know if it does happen that's all right this last year both of us had other projects other art projects that we were working on simultaneously to the james and jamesy theater shows that we were doing so it gave us a chance to to be on stage with other people or in james's case on his own and that was imp i think an important thing for us to recognize what we value about working together that experience hasn't ended up with us going oh wow that was so great i'm never gonna work with, with james again i'm going solo from now on it's been a, sort of the other thing in that wow it's really great to have someone to work with yeah that that we can share the workload with and have company as we tour you know touring is can be an isolating lifestyle you're always on the road you're in different cities every every week or every two weeks every city <laughs> different city every city uh, and it's it's nice to to know that you've got company and i would like to add that something that i i've heard from audience members for each of our shows is that they love 
the quality of the relationship between James and Jamesy. And it, it, beyond our shows, even, we teach workshops at high schools and various community groups uh, really? in cities where we do shows. Uh, and people love seeing us teach together. They love being in that I environment. And I would say that there's a quality in our standard of relationship where we are very good at sharing what's going on for each of us, hearing the other, and and not blaming each other for our feelings. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is a standard that helps every relationship that we're each in. Uh, and we just happen to uh, share those standards, which helps us work well together, uh, generally love the time together, and also work through the times where one of us is frustrated or underslept and, you know, a little crabby, <laughs> um, so that we just come through and everything's fine still. Right. So we are performing James and Jamesy in the dark at the Waterfront Theatre on Granville Island, Wednesdays through Sundays, October 5th to 16th. Tickets can be found at jamesandjamesy.com. How do you spell Jamesy? J-A-M-E-S-Y dot com. Opening night, October 5th, is half price. Woohoo! Woohoo! Thank you guys so <laughs> Thank much. Thank you, Christine. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I enjoyed hosting it. Now, do stay tuned to the Arts Report while we play a few short commercials. My name is Christine Kim, and you are listening to the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. <laughs> For over 30 years, there has been one voice in the local Vancouver art scene that has stood above the rest, and that's Discorder, that conspiracy, punk rock, foxcore, sassy, still-publishing magazine from CITR. We're one of the established and trusted voices of Vancouver's music and arts culture in the Lower Mainland, with 8,000 copies distributed monthly to over 135 distribution locations, from the Lido to Zulu Records. Discorder is one of a few magazines published by a community radio station, and we only serve up the freshest local and Canadian goods. We have interviews with artists, album reviews, live show reviews, and articles about everything important to our crazy, unique, varied, and amazing culture in Vancouver and across the country. Pick up your free copy of Discorder today, or sign up to have it delivered to your door wherever you are. Check out our website for distribution locations and all the information about advertising and getting involved with Discorder. You've been troubled, you've been broke, you've been hungry, no job, no money. The one you love has deserted you. That makes you blue. Got the blues? Just want to hear some blues? Tune in every Saturday afternoon from 3 to 5 for Code Blue, right here on CITR 101.9 FM, Vancouver, www.citr.ca, Code Blue. Here's how he feels about it. Blues ain't nothing but a man, good man feeling bad, no how. That's all that is. Welcome back to the Arts Report. My name is Christine Kim. Now, here at the station, we love, love, love repping UBC. And if you didn't know already, the UBC Department of Theatre and Film has kicked off their season premiere, opening production of Edward II, last Thursday. 
Ashley, my co-host, and I went to go see it, and I must say, it was seriously one heck of a show full of surprises. Now, seeing as that's not saying very much, I am going to be playing an interview with some of the members of the cast and the crew of this production to give you a better sense of what Edward II is all about, and hopefully convince you to go watch it. So, take a listen. My name is Daniel Corelli. I play Gaveston in this year's production of Edward II. You might have seen me in other UBC productions of Eurydice and the Arabian Nights, as well as a production of The Safe Word, which was in the Dorothy Somerset. Gotcha. And now for Edward II, do you want to give all our listeners a premise of the play? What's the play about? For sure. Uh, Edward II is really about, it's a, it's a power struggle, and it's about absolute power corrupts absolutely. There are a ton of people reaching up for this power that one guy has, and the guy who has it really doesn't want it. He just wants to love somebody, uh, and he doesn't need all the glitz and glamour associated with the power that he has. It's really a, a heartbreaking story, and it's really applicable to what's going on in our world today in so many different ways. And because you play Gaveston, I believe you're the love interest. Yes, that would be me. <laughs> Tell me a little bit more about your character. Well, it's, it's an interesting... Uh, it's an interesting love connection because the king, of course, is someone who our director continually describes as loving not wisely but too well. It's uh, in that he, he loves something outside of his station. As a king, he needs to be a little bit more um, official, and he, because he loves Gaveston so well uh, and so much, he, he leaves the, offici the official stuff behind. For Gaveston, the heartbreaking thing about it is that there's questions as to whether Gaveston is as in love with the king as the king is, as in, is in love with him. It's, uh, it's something where Gaveston is also reaching for power and that he's worked his way up uh, to this position where he's, you know, in a relationship with the king, but not necessarily for the right reasons. Mm. Uh, and it, it is fun to play a character like that because, you know, that's something that hopefully in life, I, I don't, I don't want to be that person, but to portray that on stage and to be able to take a look into what that's like has been really, really fun. I've, I've really enjoyed playing him. Yeah, and that, I like how you described it and described your character because it just sounds a lot more complex. But tell me a little bit more about the director that you guys got to work with, uh, Mary Vingo. She was a guest director? Yes, Mary Vingo, a guest director. Uh, we've been so lucky to have her. She's such a huge part of the Canadian theatre community. Uh, she's a member, she's an officer of the Order of Canada, which is like one of the, hi the highest honours that anyone could, could receive and we're so lucky that she's come to UBC to work with us. She's just from day one has had so many great ideas about the play and she's really challenged us every step of the way to grow, to find new things. We're so close to opening but we're still looking for new things and, and finding things to make the play even better. Uh, it's, been, it's been an absolute honour to work with her and she's so loved. She really is. She's just the nicest person, so it's been really nice. And now I know that Edward II is one of the earliest Elizabethan his history plays. Mm. In terms of the language and the, the the scripting, was it pretty hard to memorize and act out? And did you guys have to learn British accents? We we're, we didn't we didn't take on the British accents. No, we felt that the language itself would be something that the audience could get into. So trying to navigate British accents probably wasn't the best thing. The language itself is it is poetry. It, and, and Christopher Marlowe, a contemporary of Shakespeare, has written in such a way that when when you find the nuances in the language, even if someone's not used to hearing the words in that sense, it all makes sense. The poetry of the language, the way that it flows. 
um, the way that it sounds, even if the words aren't stuff we're used to hearing, you get a really long word, but the, the passion behind it really just allows the audience, in my experience, to know what's going on anyway. And there's so much... Um, in between the lines, you know, there's so much uh, subtext that we as that we as the actors try to find to, to give to the audience, and that Mary has been so helpful in in finding for us. Um, so the language itself, in terms of memorization, sometimes can be a little bit more difficult than your standard lines. But uh, once we once we get it, and once we start to work through it and find things, it's it's been wonderful and I hope that the audience will be able to to take from what we're giving them what what the play is all about which is again that that power struggle that that what do we do with power <laughs> how much is too much and and right. what can we do with that right so in terms of the audience being able to understand those kind of themes and understand the dialogue in the play you don't think that'll be a problem I don't think that will be a problem at all no I think that the audience will uh, will totally identify with what's going on on stage and and it's it's such a cool space to tell us um, you're right on top of the action the actors are in behind you around you coming through you it's really uh, coming through yeah no no like coming through audience members and really just like they're right next to you it's a uh, it's something that you can just you're right next to them and you feel it as much as you hear it. Have it's you wonderful. ever uh, performed at the TELUS? The, we have. I have not personally performed at the TELUS. Uh, UBC Theater is back at the TELUS after about a three-year hiatus from the TELUS, and we're super excited to be back. It's such a unique space. Uh, there's nothing else like it in Vancouver. Three-tiered levels, and uh, surround. We're, the stage is surrounded by towers, um, so we can use levels. We can, uh, you know, actors are, are climbing things and and moving around, saying lines from behind the audience. It's really a a really cool space and mm -hmm. something that audiences won't have seen if you if you live in Vancouver. You won't have seen anything like this. And I heard that music is actually a pretty integral part of the production. Um, even though it's not a musical, mm -hmm. I, I heard there were quite a lot of musical compositions. Absolutely. It, it, it came about, about you know, w there's nothing in Edward II in the script that says music must be played here, but uh, the more that we worked with the text, we were like, this needs, you know, a trumpet blast or something like that. And uh, we were so lucky to have uh, one of the cast members, uh, Sarah Jane, who... Uh, um, was able to compose some of the stuff for us, and we also had uh, Ed and Taryn, who who worked really hard to compose stuff and then put it all into recording. So the cast, it's a the cast recorded all the music that the audience will hear, along with a couple uh, helpers from the UBC Opera Program. So we're so grateful to them. Uh, and yeah, we just started to hear the the recordings as they're coming together, and they sound they sound pretty good. We're we're pretty pleased with them. So props to Ed and Taryn for putting all that together. Mm -hmm. As you mentioned, you know, you've been, this is your final year and you have been in other productions. Um, but for this one specifically, tell me about what it was like working with your cast members. The the cast has been absolutely fantastic. We've, uh, that, that particular core group, most of us have worked together for three years. Okay. So we, uh, we're, we're very familiar with each other, um, and it just flowed really seamlessly into the first uh, part of rehearsal. You know, we've been able to talk to each other, we've been able to ask each other questions about character or scene or whatever, and, uh, and really dialogue about that and, and, and find new things. The difference between, I think, working on this show and working with, with other shows was just, this is the first show I've done with an Elizabethan text, 
at UBC, but the uh, the ability that we had to to really sit down with each other, go through the text, and then get it up on its feet really quickly. We spent uh, a lot of the first part of rehearsal um, not necessarily blocking, but just saying lines while moving around the space, uh, like moving uh, and and seeing what the movement uh, gave us, seeing what what happens when we just you know crawl on the floor or and say the line or jump up and down and say the line, and that's something that you you know we felt comfortable doing because of how close we were as cast. Mm -hmm. So it's been wonderful. I'm super excited to get back on stage with them. Um, I think it's going to be great. Yeah, it seems like you guys had a lot of creative license this time around. I mean, opening night is next Thursday. Are you feeling prepared? Is there anything left that you is, have to do? It How is coming finished? together. It is coming together. We're, we uh, just just yesterday we, we we saw lights and and sound for the first time. So we've got uh, a week to to put all that together. Um, but it's coming together really smoothly. Um, the actors, like all the characters, are just have cr incredible incredible journeys and stories that I think audience can relate to every single character. Um, you know from from the lowest of the low to the king himself it's it's very relatable and i think that it's it's more than ready for an audience we just need people to come uh, buy and buy tickets you can get them at the freddie wood box office you can get them uh at theaterfilm.ubc.ca and also on facebook if you find edward ii by christopher marlowe uh those are three places that you can get tickets um the theater is uh is smaller than than the freddie wood which is where I usually perform so um i get tickets right away because i'm th the show hopefully will sell out so right. i would say get tickets as fast as possible and when does the show great. run until the show runs from uh the 29th we open on the 29th this is thursday and we run until october the 15th it's just a saturday uh three weeks from now awesome any final words for um ubc students in particular who don't know if they should spend their money on this <laughs> yeah you know i the, the the thing about the money you know it, this is the cheapest theater ticket that you might find in town for students it's like 11 bucks it's really cheap um and and it's a, it's a space that you'll never have seen before um so much of that and it's so applicable to to what's going on in the world today we live in a world where power is is so often talked about politics is a huge a huge deal and the idea of um how much power do we have and what what does power mean and what do we do with power the king has a great line i don't want to spoil but um that he says in the middle of the play where he says uh, uh what are kings when regiment is gone but perfect shadows in a sunshine day and it really it makes you think about you know what is power and, and what what can you do with it and if you have power how do you use it wisely because again it can fade out just like that so it's a it's really topical it's really uh it's really beautiful and i just think that everyone can identify with it so i'd say um spend an evening it's about the price of a beer and you know what we'll take you to another world and you won't be hung over the next day i promise <laughs> so it's all good it's been a pleasure talking with you daniel thank and you, you too, very Christine. much I'm Edward Dawson, and I'm the sound designer for Edward II. I'm Taryn Plater, I'm one of the composers for Edward II. So you guys are both involved in the sound aspect of this production. Is there a lot of music in Edward II? Yes, absolutely. I think we've got about eight pieces that come in in different parts, possibly a couple more. Yeah, well, it's um, a lot of things tend to underscore the action and to help with transitions. There's a lot of Gregorian chant or Gregorian chant inspired pieces and a lot of God save the king <laughs> That's um, a recurring theme that kind of comes back throughout the play uh, It starts off with 
Gaveston singing it live to his love, King Edward II. Uh, and it comes back uh, in different themes to sort of highlight what happens throughout the play in a sad part or an angry part. And then most of the music, or all the music actually, is uh, all vocal. And it's all been recorded uh, by our actors and some of the opera singers that Taryn managed to rope Very in. cool. Yeah. Um, and we got to record all that in the TELUS as well. So it sounds absolutely fantastic. So Taryn, you're the co-composer, and then Edward, you are the sound designer. What is the difference between those two roles? So I'm the one as the sound designer to sort of figure out what the music should sound like, like what we want the audience to feel from that. Uh, and then Taryn, as the co-composer with Sarah, uh, actually helped create that music for me. She took my vision and made it a real thing. Mm, anything to add? Um, yeah, just and we were also, I guess, helping figure out who would sing the songs and teaching them. That was, that was a large part. <laughs> that was part. a very big part. So, I mean, all this music is original then that you guys created? Or were there specific references that you guys pulled from? They're all original arrangements, I guess. Um, there's quotes from Gregorian chant, like pre-existing Gregorian chant. There's quotes from God Save the King and lots of um, playing on those harmonies. And then there's some pieces, Sarah's pieces are also like kind of modified versions of existing pieces of Mary. Yeah, she yeah. basically rearranged a lot of uh, God Save the King and would take the chords and would, uh, I don't remember the technical term, but you take the chord out and it's suddenly a note and it's a arpeggio. It is an arpeggio. <laughs> yeah, I should remember that term. For the production, is this your guys' first time working with the, the Department of UBC Theatre and Film? Um, well, it's my, my first time working with UBC Theatre. I've done music directing for the Musical Theatre Club here, um, and I've taught private voice lessons, but this was a very different, in a really good way, a really cool experience um, to be part of putting, like adding music to something that didn't already have music and be more have more creative license in that way, I guess. Yeah, uh, and I started uh, UBC Theater last year with Eurydice as assistant sound design and sound up for that show. And then I applied to be the sound designer for Edward II because the telespace is such a unique space for sound. It's very echoey and reverby in the space and it's got surround speakers in it. It's just a really unique challenge that I was really excited to sound design for. Nadja, what were some of the specific challenges working with the Telus Studio Theater? Whenever anybody talks in the space, it reverbs it because the space is cinder block. They stained it to make it sound better, um, but just there isn't enough fabric or anything to absorb that sound. So whenever an actor talks, uh, the actors also have to be very careful about making sure that their words don't blend together too much. And so as a sound designer, when you're putting even more sound into that in a speaker, you really have to be careful about if you're going to overrun the actors' voices. Um, mm. But after QDQ last night, I think it sounds really good and we've got to a good level. And now, I mean, the opening night is coming up really soon and next Thursday. Um, what's still left to do? Well, all the music is pretty much done now. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Taryn's job is done. It's just me uh, going through QDQ with uh, the stage manager and our director, Mary Van Gogh. Um, and we're just finalizing where all the cues come in, where all the cues come out, making sure that all the actors are heard. It's 
basically just finalizing everything and making sure it sounds awesome. That's totally fair. And now for our listeners here, like our UBC student listeners um, of our program, what are a couple words you would say to entice them to go up to come watch Edward II? It is a phenomenal show. There is so much action. It's always tense. It's always moving forward. The pace is so quick. And it's in the Telus Theater. We haven't been in there for two years. Uh, we're finally back in the space. We're really excited about it. It looks amazing. It's very intimate in a way that you kind of get in the Dorothy Somerset building uh, when we have our 520 shows, but it's very different because you also have the towers. It's like um, the Globe Theater in Shakespeare, kind of, because you have those tower seatings. Uh, and so it gives you a very different perspective, especially if you get to sit in them, because you're kind of on top of them and you get to look down at the actors like their hands. Mm. Yeah, I haven't actually seen the full production, but the parts that I have seen are, there's there's a scene at the end that is just, oh my goodness. <laughs> just, it's very powerful and very, there are parts that are like, uncomfortable just how well done it is that yeah. makes sense wow it, it just hits you it really hits you in the chest and it's just bam this has happened this is so vague it makes me so curious <laughs> <laughs> that was perfect great awesome um so to end off this interview do you guys want to just repeat the ways that people can get tickets the run date of the production if you guys know it September 29th to October 15th. Uh, you get tickets by typing in in UBC Theatre, uh, Edward II, and it should come up. You can also go to our Facebook page, UBC Theatre on Facebook. Uh, that will have the link to the event, and at the event, uh, there's a link to the ticket website. It's going to be an absolutely phenomenal show. Great. Thanks, guys. Now that's it for the show today. Thank you for joining us, Arts Reporter listeners. For more information on anything we talked about on today's program, feel free to reach out to us on our Facebook and Twitter account. Our Twitter handle is at CITR underscore Arts Report, and you can find us on Facebook under the name The Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. Tune in again next week for another edition of The Arts Report.